Hello and welcome to a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. Today we will go down into the Salt and Light cellar and bring up some of our favorite conversations from the fall of 2014. First, Deacon James Keating suggests that the most intimate thing a married couple can do together is pray. And we speak with singer-songwriter Craig Colson. In our second half hour, Father James Mallon has some very concrete ideas to help us renew our parishes, and we end the program by speaking with 19-year-old singer-songwriter Mags. Remember to visit us at saltandlighttv.org radio, and to comment on what you hear or to ask any questions, look for me, Deacon Pedro, on Facebook and Twitter. We now begin with Spousal Prayer. I remember several years ago, a good friend told me that one of the sexiest things he could think of doing with his girlfriend was to go to mass together. Now, I don't know if I would use the word sexiest for mass, but I do agree that praying together is incredibly intimate and it can definitely bring a husband and wife closer together. Deacon James Keating is the author of Spousal Prayer, A Way to Marital Happiness, and he says that prayer is, I quote, the most intimate experience a couple can share. I think this is a bold statement. And to tell us more, I am now joined by Deacon James Keating. Deacon James, welcome to the Salt and Light Hour. Thank you very much. So the most intimate, really? Really, because you're actually, you and your bride are actually going right to the source of love, right to the source of truth when you pray together. When you're vulnerable enough to share your, uh, your deepest feelings Uh, with one another in the presence of God, when those feelings are being actually directed toward God's own heart, the bond between the husband and wife uh, deepens uh, apace, and it makes everything about the marriage uh, more unified. It's uh, raising of the children, uh, it's also their own uh, sexual life, uh, Mm -hmm. even how to handle the schedule during the day, because the effects of them bringing all of their thoughts, feelings, and desires to the Trinity every day uh, gives immeasurable graces to them to organize their own life, to be closer together, to share more deeply their own intimate feelings with each other as well. Mm -hmm. So it simply does uh, ground the marriage in the source of love itself. Okay, so I'm, I'm glad you added that extra part of it in, um, in terms of the graces and bringing, bringing your struggles, etc., to the, to the Trinity, the source, because I, I think that a lot of skeptics or, or naysayers would say, well, how is that different than just a couple being vulnerable and sharing honestly with each other, but you're adding a different dimension? Yeah, it's the, the dimension of the source, that's right. And it's funny, whenever you mention this part, like, it's okay for us to go to our counselor and yeah. learn how to share our deepest feelings with each other, and that's socially acceptable. But whenever you mention that being taken up into prayer as well, right? then this book, more than any other book I've written, uh, the comments back to me are always about, oh, this is too idealistic. Right. Uh, people will never be able to do this. There's a sad cynicism about what couples can achieve in love today, mm-hmm. particularly around the spiritual life. And I'm kind of hoping the book will help a little to dispel that cynicism if you enter into it. Okay. Now, um, you're not talking about just pray, you know, sitting next to each other and, and praying the rosary together, although that can be part of it. You're also adding a, a different element to that prayer experience, correct? 
Right. The, the first thing that we need to do as couples, I think, is uh, to see whether the ground beneath us is firm enough even to pray. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that I invite couples into is a new level of trust. Uh, in mm-hmm. marriage prep, particularly, we find that couples sometimes don't trust each other enough to pray. Right. And um, it's odd. It's backwards today. People cohabitate. Uh, they They have sex before marriage. But they don't come to God. Mm-hmm. That's that's too much. That's too revealing. And so we have to reverse that. We have to first tell them it's okay to trust one another with feelings, trust one another with their real ideas, the truths that are in their hearts, bring those to God, and the uh, the marriage will actually bond quicker that way. So you mentioned lack of trust. Is that, would you say, the main reason why husbands and wives do not pray yes. together? Yes, trust, mostly. Yeah, it's such an intimate experience that if their relationship is not on the firm ground of sharing their affective life with each other to begin with, this prayer either descends to rote prayer, and they never get to a, a real sharing of the self in the presence of another before the living God. They they can't make it that far because there's a lot of work that they have to do with one another still, mm-hmm. to trust one another and to have a deeper form of communication with one another. Then when that happens... The prayer life just takes off. Right. Now, would you describe this as a, as a how-to book? When I, honestly, when I first received it, I thought it would, it would actually contain prayers that spouses could pray together. But this is, right. this is an instruction book. No, it's not, book. it's not a how-to book, except for this uh, one part at the end. I try to answer some practical questions about prayer. How to pray. And then I also give them a way of praying together. So there's practical examples at the end of the book. The center of the book, I would say, is basically three things. How to look at your spouse anew, to -hmm. behold your spouse, sort of to recall the beauty of why you even were attracted to the spouse to begin with. This is how we reestablish our love. Then from the uh, beholding or the beauty, we learn to listen again. We have to always relearn to listen to our spouse, especially if we've been married for a few years. We take this for granted. Mm -hmm. And then most necessarily, we have to learn to forgive. So we behold, we listen, and we forgive. If we live that rhythm, then we can pray. And oddly enough, or not oddly actually, uh, those are the same things we need to do with God to to enter into deeper prayer with Him. We need to behold Him. We need to contemplate His beauty. We need to listen to Him, to listen to Him love us. Mm -hmm. And then where necessary, we don't have to forgive God, but we have to repent. We have to ask for forgiveness. So if you can do those three things, you can both grow closer to your spouse and deeper in prayer. So it sounds like the the, the model, or maybe that's not the right word, but what you're saying is that this idea that marriage is, is truly an image of the relationship that God wants to have with us, that, that if we live in our marriage the, the proper relationship that we need to be having with God, then that's obviously going to benefit our marriage because we're living marriage the way God intended it to be, but it's also going to deepen our relationship with God. That's but, right. But Pick not the doorway that's easier. If, you're, if your relationship is going well, you already are beholding and listening and forgiving each other, yes. well, then you can start praying. Or if you're doing that with God, take those skills or those virtues and go right. uh, closer to your spouse. Right. But you're saying that first we need to learn to behold each other, to listen to each other, and to forgive each other. Otherwise, our prayer life is never going to go deeper. It, yes, it won't, reach, it won't reach the quality that I believe God wants all spouses to have with each other. Right. Now, uh, I know you've been married over 25 years. Um, 
why did you feel the need to write this book? Where, what experiences had you been seeing with, with I guess, your own experience and your, your friends, family, that you thought, wow, something's missing here and people need help in this area? Well, most especially when couples or individuals come to me for spiritual direction, what I was hearing was this unbelievable thirst for more. Mm -hmm. they, they weren't happy in their marriages, and, and frankly, a lot of the uh, people who came to me were suffering from uh, infidelity, and they wanted to know how to get to the level of forgiveness that they needed. Right. But they, this striving for more... Uh, this is where infidelity comes from. Mm -hmm. If it's not uh, satisfied in the spiritual, then we will continually look to satisfy the more in, in less than worthy objects. Mm -hmm. And so I realized that at the core of a good Catholic marriage is this restlessness for the more. So we needed a pathway to get people uh, to rest in the more and not uh, be distracted by anything less or undignified objects to pursue out of that restlessness. Do you think that this book, I mean, clearly it's for married couples, but is this something that we should be giving to even young people before marriage as they discern marriage, marriage prep, so that we learn to pray and understand how that would impact our married life? Yes, I mean, I wrote the book with uh, couples in mind and also those who are engaged. Right. It's a real tiny little book. It's only like 50 yes. pages long. Yeah, it's great. So it's not intimidating at all. It could be used for a marriage prep program or it could be used for a, a marriage uh, a prayer circle or couples groups. Mm -hmm. uh, it's small enough that people can get into it and pause and think about it and talk about it together in a, a formation type area. Right. Now if I can ask you a, a, maybe a personal question, how, how did prayer ch change or affect your marriage? When we uh, first started our marriage, it was, again, we lived as Americans in the culture of distraction. And what we realized is if we don't have a half hour of time together mm -hmm. with God and with each other every day, so we call it our happy hour. <laughs> we have come home, we get pretzels, we get wine, we talk, and then that leads into our prayer time. So every day for a half hour, we first communicate with each other, and then we communicate with God with each other. And that basically uh, has gotten us through the last 28 years with great joy. Wow. So that's another important advice there, to set time aside. Don't do it randomly. Just schedule time. Uh, it has to be prayer. scheduled. Yes. Uh, and again, this is crucial, and this is the great struggle, greater than maybe even the intimacy, yes. is to find the time in people's calendars today to make where the they could do a half hour yeah. every day. Yeah. Well, Deacon James, it's been a, a great pleasure. I've heard a lot about you, but it's good to finally speak to you, uh, even if over the airwaves here. Um, thank you for the book and for the work that you're doing, and I'm sure that we'll be in touch. Thank you. God bless you all. Deacon James Keating is the director of the Diaconate Formation Program for the Archdiocese of Oma. He's also the director of theological formation for the Institute for Priestly Formation at Crichton University, also in Omaha, Nebraska. He has been married to Marianne for over 25 years. I think he said 28, and they have four children. His book, Spousal Prayer, A Way to Marital Happiness, is published by the Institute for Priestly Formation. And you can learn more at priestlyformation.org. You can also purchase the book at catholicword.com. And a note to our Spanish-speaking listeners, this book is also available in Spanish, La Oración Conyugal. So uh, go, and, go and get it. Here now is our featured artist of the week, Craig Colson, with This Is Your Justice from his album, I Am The Way. 
That was Craig Colson with This Is Your Justice from his album, I Am The Way. 
Craig and his wife, Kristen, are both musicians and songwriters who lead music at St. Jerome Catholic Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Craig has been a music and liturgy director in the Phoenix area for over 20 years. Currently, Craig is the liturgy liaison for Life Teen. That means that he provides some of the music suggestions and writes liturgical articles in the Life Teen Liturgy Resource Guides. His latest album, I Am The Way, which we've been listening to, is published by World Library Publications and features seven new songs that are perfect for liturgy but can also be used for retreats or any other events. And I'm very happy to welcome Craig Colson to the Salt and Light Hour. Craig, welcome to the program. Yeah, thank you. So good to be here. So what was it like growing up? Was it, was it a Catholic household? Was it a musical household? Tell us about, about that. Yeah, not a musical household, um, but definitely a Catholic uh, household. My mom was uh, cradle Catholic, yeah. and um, and her whole family. My dad was actually raised Jewish, oh, yeah. um, but we um, but we went to Catholic church as a kid. So yeah. Um. Uh. So you said not musical. So at what point did you start uh, showing interest for music? Yeah, I started playing. Uh, actually, I kind of came home from school after third or fourth grade, I think it was, and we all had to kind of, you know, that time in school, and they say, pick an instrument yeah, for the right. band. So yeah. um, I said to my mom, I said, well, what, what should I play? And she just immediately said the drums. And I said, oh, yeah. wow, okay, yeah, that's cool. Maybe because I was always banging on the back of the seat <laughs> in the car um, while we were driving and those kind of things. So um, so I just picked up the drums and I started taking lessons and I was in the band in school and it really wasn't until I moved to, to Phoenix, uh, the end of my eighth grade year, my dad got a job transfer yeah. and moved up to Phoenix and, uh, that's when I really started playing drums. Um, and that actually kind of brought me back to my faith, which I had kind of, kind of left earlier, you know. Okay, wait. So, so can you explain that? So, drums bring you back to the faith. That's the title yeah, of the next book. Yeah, drums brought me back to the Catholic Church, if you can believe that. Because what had happened was, in, back in New York, um, in sixth grade, we received our confirmation, and mass to me as a child was so painful. Yes. You know, you get out of bed, your parents are screaming, "Get out of bed! We're going to be late for church!" You know, and then when we got there, it was just so boring to me as a kid, and the you know the music was just not attracted to me. It was real mm-hmm. high, you know, opera kind of music that I just kind of couldn't relate to. Yeah. And and so, you know, of course, I'd rather sleep. So my mom kind of made me one of those deals. And she said, well, you need to get your confirmation. You know, that's your last sacrament that you're, you know, I promise God you need to you need to get. So she said, if you, you know, get your confirmation, you don't have to go to Mass anymore on Sundays. Wow. Yeah. And so, so I kind of, you know, and, uh, and she feels, you know, bad about that now. But that was kind of at the time yeah. was the way to get me there. So. Um, so then I never went to Mass again. Then we moved to Phoenix a couple of years later, and my parents, you know, my mom, that good old Catholic guilt, you know, kind of started setting in, and she's like, we haven't been to Mass in a couple of years. So they started driving around looking for churches, and they weren't, you know, too impressed with a couple or whatever. I don't know what they were looking for, but finally they found this one, and they just came home, like, unbelievably just raving about this church, and you have to come, you have to come. And I said, wait a minute. You made me a deal that I never had to go to Mass again. And they said, but wait, the music is just amazing. You have to hear it. And there's drums. Oh. And I was like, get out of here. There's no drums in a Catholic church. Right. And they're like, yeah, no, seriously. And so I went just kind of out of bare curiosity. <laughs> and uh, Tom Kenzia, who's actually yeah. a, a published composer, was actually, it was his last Sunday as music director. Oh, wow. And the wow. music was just amazing. And then the next Sunday was this new music director, Paul Hillebrand, who's also a published yeah. composer. And it was just amazing music. And I was like, gosh, you know, so I kind of started playing drums on the pews. Uh-huh. And then one day there was like no drummer there. And I kind of sat sat over there. I was just kind of, you know, playing. And, 
And the music, Paul, you know, said to me, he said, what are you doing, you know, Wednesday night? And I said, I don't know, you know, hanging out, you know, we'll come to practice. So that's how I actually got involved in back into my faith. And I started playing drums nice. at mass. Nice. Okay. I have so many questions. Um, I'm not yeah. sure if we're going to get, but so, so you, you said your dad was Jewish. Was he not practicing his faith? How did that dynamic sort of work? Was he very supportive of the Catholic faith of your mother? And he went to mass with you? Yeah, he just went to Mass with us and just was very supportive. And, you know, he wasn't raised like a strict, you know, a Jew or anything, yeah. but, but just, you know, was very supportive of my mom. And actually through my conversion in high school, through the Life Teen movement, the Life Teen program that came to my parish, right. um, my dad actually converted and right. became a Catholic. Right. Okay. So uh, is, is it ironic? Because you're a liturgist now. I mean, you're like the guy who does workshops on liturgy and writes about <laughs> liturgy and you write liturgical music and you actually hated mass. <laughs> so, yeah. Crazy, isn't it? <laughs> what What is it about the liturgy now that moves you and kind of did that start? Can you pinpoint like the day I was, I started drumming on such a day and that's when I started understanding liturgy or was it something that was more gradual? Oh, I don't think I understood it at that point. I just, something I enjoyed, you know, the music and I enjoyed playing. I think it was more yeah. started as that. I really didn't have a, a huge clue of what was going on. It wasn't probably till later, you know, through my involvement with Life Teen, through, you know, breaking open the Mass, talking about what's actually happening at the Mass. Right. You know, it's where heaven meets earth, you know, and just re- coming into realization of, you know, what we're actually doing and saying and participating in that the Mass really started to come alive for me. And then my love, you know, for the liturgy, just the more I explored the documents, you know, Vatican II and, yeah. you know, just all the different liturgical documents of our church, just, yeah. you know, really fell in love with it. So. Were you, so you got involved with Life Teen as a teenager? Correct. Yeah. So that, now explain that to me then, because, so one thing is the intellectual part. Yeah. Learning about the Mass and what it, things mean yeah. and heaven on earth, you, you use that phrase. But right. if you haven't had a real a real experience of mass, all yeah. that other stuff is is also meaningless. So, as a liturgist now, what would you suggest that we parents or or youth ministers or pastors that we need to do to sort of pass on that to young people? Right. Well, I think as a parent, I think we need to do our best to try and find, you know, for me now I can go to mass anywhere and it's mass is the mass, you know what I mean? No matter what the music is or no matter, you know, if it's traditional or contemporary, whatever it is, but that's the point I'm at in my life, you know, Mm -hmm. and that's not better than anybody else. But I'm just saying for a teenager who's maybe trying discovering their faith or doesn't know, like I was, you know, for parents to try and find some kind of youth mass, you know, um, around, you know, maybe their neighborhood or, you know, different church or whatever it might be to maybe experience, you know, to give their teens that experience. And then on the other hand, from the church aspect, I think every church needs to be doing, you know, whatever we can to reach out to our youth. I think a lot of times, you know, and being on a parish, you know, different parish staffs for 20 years, we can kind of look at this and we can kind of go, oh, well, you know, there's not really a lot of teens coming. And so we really don't need to do anything because there's, we don't have a lot of teens here. Yeah. And so we don't really need to put anything on. But that's, that like might be the ministry, but the mission is to go, to go out. There's, yeah. there's teens that walk by your church every day, you know, yeah. on their way to school or wherever it is. They're, they're, they're there. We need to be, that's, and that's, I think, the new evangelization. We need yeah. to find different ways of reaching out to them and bringing them to our church. So what do we need to to you know, to do at our at our masses, especially. Yeah. Um, and I'm not saying dumb down the liturgy or anything like that. I'm saying just make you know the music should be great and the the preaching should be great and especially to speak to the young people. They're dealing with so many things and to talk about you know some of the issues that are, 
you know, going on with in their in their lives. Yeah, know? and and I I think well I definitely agree with you, and I see that in my own parish and my own experience, and I know, I'm sure a lot of people agree with you. But what would you say the, to the people who don't agree with you that would say, well, the mass is not about the music, and it's not about the preaching; it's about the Eucharist, and so we need right. to just suck it up. What would you say yeah. to those people? And I, and I agree. I agree with that. It's not about. It's not all about that. You know, in in some ways, you know, and but are we just going to then just have empty churches? You know, so what's going to happen to our young people? Because whether we like it or not, our young people are being, I don't want to say stolen, but I'll say yeah. stolen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, stolen away from Protestant churches. who are. And I'm not saying we should change everything about the Mass. That's not what I'm saying. But we need to make it, we need to find ways within the, you know, uh, the liturgical documents, yeah. you know, the, the documents talk about enculturation. Yeah. So yeah. would we would we say that our teens are a different culture? I would think we would all say, yeah, this is a different culture. You mm. know, we didn't grow up on cell phones and, you know, Facebook and Instagram and all these things. And, you know, this is a totally different culture. So what are we doing to enculturate our teens into our parish? You know, right. so this isn't something I'm making up or, you know, life teens making up. It's it's really uh, what the church has given us too. Right now, I'm curious about how you you work with your wife, Kristen, because you're mm-hmm. both on on staff at the parish. No, we're not both on staff. Okay. She was actually she was a teacher at the school last year. Okay, um, but she she's you know volunteer music minister, cantor, and she canters at a few of the masses. Right, and um, and, and then sorry, and you write music together. And we write music together. Yeah, it kind of came, um, you know, we love writing music together. The first, when we first got published, we started writing verbatim psalm responses because a lot right. of the um, the psalm responses that we have that are contemporary are, are paraphrased. <laughs> yes. And, yeah, and so a lot of, like, this one parish we were at, the, the priest is now a bishop, actually, um, Bishop Wall in... Uh-huh. Um, in uh, Gallup, New Mexico. Yes. We actually worked for him at a parish here in Phoenix. And he was like, you know, we're going to chant the Psalms unless you guys start writing them and they're right. the exact text. Yes. Um, cause we're paraphrasing the word of God. So we just started every week, you know, we were just writing Psalms and writing Psalms went, and yeah. that's when we did our first that's great. album that way. That's great. So, and a lot of people do that now, but the, but the, your latest album, I am the way was not a collaboration with your wife. Um, there's, uh, w- one song that we collaborated on faith enough to believe that I believe you're going to play at the end of this. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're going to end the show program. with that. Yeah. Yeah, that song we wrote together, um, and the other ones that are on there, just, you know, coincidentally, those songs we didn't particularly write together, but we do write a lot, a lot of music together, nice. and we sing together, and, and love to do that ministry together. So. Beautiful. So, just to end off then, um, I know we've heard a, a two of the songs already from, from the album, but what would you, what... It's. I suppose I can say it's a liturgical album, and that the songs are good for liturgy, but is that, was that sure. your main focus, or...? Um, my main focus, you know, is always the liturgy. You know, I, I try and write music for the liturgy, you know, like uh, the first song that's on the album is Veni Sancti Spiritus. It's, yes. the, it's the actual um, uh, Pentecost sequence, uh-huh. and then the, ver- the refrain is in Latin, but the verses are the verbatim text, you know, the actual text from the sequence. So written for liturgy, but you can also, you know, listen to it in the car or, you know, yeah, jam out to it going down yeah. the freeway, whatever, you know, whatever it might nice. be, you know, or use it yeah. as part of your prayer. Um, so, uh, you know, just depends on the way the mood moves, but a lot of times, yeah, I write but for so, the mass. Yeah. So liturgy will be the, the main focus, which, which is great. Cause I always say that, that the Catholic radio really is the mass. That's, that's yeah. where our, 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 the best of our music ends up in. Um, Craig, that's all the time we have, but it's been really good connecting with you. We've been actually playing, playing your album for 
couple months now. So it's so good to meet you. Um, Thank you for what you're doing, and I'm sure all paths will cross again. Yeah, I hope they do, and thank you so much for, for the time. You can learn more about Craig Colson. You can purchase his music or find out how to bring him to your parish or community by going to his website, craigcolson.com. Here now is Craig Colson with Faith Enough to Believe, that song that he co-wrote with his wife from their new album or his new album, I Am The Way. Listening to Craig Colson with Faith Enough to Believe from his new album, I Am the Way. You're listening to a special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. I'm Deacon Pedro. Check out our website at saltandlighttv.org slash radio. Hello and welcome to the Salt and Light Hour Part 2. I'm Deacon Pedro. Now, some of us know all too well the parish that looks more like a community center hosting bingo and AA meetings and card socials. Do you think that this is the role of the parish? Do you think that as Catholics it's enough to just go hear Mass for an hour a week? Is the job of evangelizing just for priests, deacons, and those in religious life? Well, Father James Mallon disagrees. In his new book, Divine Renovation, he shows us how we've lost our identity. And that's what he'd like to tell us today. Father James, so good to have you back on the, in the program. It's great to be with you, even across the mile. Across the mile. Last time I spoke to you, you were walking the streets of London, England. Today you're driving from somewhere in New Brunswick back to Halifax in the from, rain. That's correct, yeah. Y- you're just we are, we're currently uh, almost at Sackville, New Brunswick. In fact, if we time this uh, interview correctly, uh, we may end uh, as we glor- gloriously cross over the, 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 uh, the provincial boundary. Into Nova Scotia. Beautiful. So, <laughs> so James, I'm, I'm, I'm loving your book, Divine Renovation from a Maintenance oh, to a Missional you. Parish. It, it is so, I mean, it's, it's what Pope Francis is saying. It's, it's what we're hearing. We've been hearing it all year, and you've, you've put it in, in a language that at least simple-minded people like me can understand. Your basic yeah. thing, you start off the top of the book saying that we've lost our way. We've lost our identity of Catholics. What do you mean? Well, I think, you know, that the premise of the book really is that the key, the key crisis of our churches is an identity crisis. But if you think of the, the ministry of Jesus, before he 
did anything in the major events of his life, it began with an assertion of, of his identity, both at the at the baptism and during the transfiguration. So identity becomes before action. Identity will define your action. And I believe that a lot of our inaction around being a missional church has to do with that identity crisis. And I would sum that up basically by saying this, that we often think of mission as something that a church possibly might eventually be able to get around to doing something about, mm-hmm. as opposed to the fact that we are essentially missional. It is our nature. In fact, when we say in the Creed the Church is, is apostolic, that's mm-hmm. the original meaning of it, is that we are a missional church. And Pope Francis has said the same. You know, he said in his pre-conclave speech, in, in his notes, he said that the Church must go out, and he said it repeatedly and repeatedly again and again, rather than being a self-referential church, because the self-referential church it's a sick church. Yeah, you said, uh, you said also something in the book that I'd never thought. I mean, I've, uh, in Spanish, the word that we use for ministry is apostolate, um, but those yeah. in English, those two those words are, are two very different things. Is that what you're talking? So apostolate is sort of going out, but ministry is sort of well, maintenance. Yeah, it's, it's, I think an indicator of of the change and how we we lost some of the key insights of the Second Vatican Council. And I think the the debate around the council in the, the last fifty years really was around issues of church governance and, and liturgical squabbles, mm-hmm. whereas the real insight of, of the Council really was the regaining uh, a, a proper understanding of, of the universal uh, call to mission and holiness, or, or, or the priesthood of the baptized. And if you look at the decree in the laity, all the language in Vatican II speak of the lay apostolate. An apostolate, the word apostolate, uh, comes from um, the word apostolane, in Greek, which means to send out, to send out. So it means the lay missionary. Uh, and so uh, that term was used in the conciliar document, but in most of our church uh, day-to-day life, we never talk about apostles, we talk about lay ministry. Mm-hmm. And when we, most of the lay ministry that happens in our parishes, inwards-focused ministry, think about it, for many years the summit of the baptismal calling for Catholics was to be a lecturer Mass or give out communion. Yeah. And, and while those are noble and necessary ministries, they do not, uh, some, <laughs> it's not the summation of the baptismal calling. The nature of the baptismal calling is to turn around and go out, not right. to be turned inwards. And I think that's the significant indicator of, the, of the, the loss of identity in our Church, the way that the term lay apostolate disappeared. Yeah. Now, when you were vocations director, you, you tell a story about a meeting with a young man who would say, hey, I feel like I'm called to the priesthood, and you'd ask him, like you should, why do you feel that way? And they would say, well, because I want to deepen my faith, I want to learn more about theology and about the catechism, and I feel like I want to serve and let people know about Jesus Christ. And basically your answer to them was, well, that's, that's, that's not the job of the priest. You're just feeling a regular, a normal call, the tug to what's in your heart, the b- baptismal call to the universal call to mission. That's right, and I think that that story is in the segment where I talk about about clericalism. Yes. And I define clericalism as the appropriation by the clergy of what is proper to the baptized. So basically, for a long time in our Church, uh, what was normative of of baptism was basically that that intensity of Christian living, if anyone lived that intensity, then you had to be a priest or a nun. So uh, the the clergy became the super-Christian and in isolation, and uh, the isolation of the clergy uh, was a very unhealthy thing. But the other side of that equation was the fact that it left the baptized 
in mediocrity and, and minimal, minimalism and immaturity, so that uh, the, the baptized was, was left off the hook to, to live out their calling. And so you had almost like a kind of spiritual surrogacy, where uh, the priest was doing it for us because, heck, we just can't do that. And, and so it was mutually complicit, and that's a term that Pope Francis used when he spoke about clericalism, when he spoke to the leaders of CELAM, uh, that's the, the Latin American, American Bishops, Bishops Conference, Conference during World Youth Day, yes. and he said that he called clericalism a, a, a mutually complicit sinful condition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because the laity are happy for with for the for the, all that that holy stuff to be done by priests and deacons and, and, and nuns, and they're just content with just sitting at mass once a week, for an hour. Yeah. And and please don't dare go over that hour. Oh well, of course, yeah. Of, of course. And, whereas in contrast, you know, Pope Francis has been using the term missionary disciple. Yes. Which reminds us that the core mission of the church is to make disciples. If you go to Matthew 28, the Great Commission, yes. this forecast to go, to make disciples, to baptize and teach. Yep. And at the heart of that Great Commission is the task to make disciples. We're called to be disciples, which is to be people, to, to have parishioners who are constantly growing and maturing. And then the term missionary disciple raises the question of the apostolate, because if the Greek word is apostle, to go out is apostle, mm-hmm. the Latin word is missionary. It means the same word. Yes, you, and yes. by this term, he means that the church is called to make people into disciples, and then to make disciples into apostles, who so in turn go out and get more people to become disciples, to become apostles. That's the cycle of evangelization. Mm-hmm. So are you suggesting then that we need to do a, a, a shift, in, there, there needs to be a shift in thinking, that I need to see myself, as, a, as a, if I'm a layperson, as, as more intentionally, as an intentional Christian? Absolutely, and that's really the, the distinction between uh, being a, a believer and being a disciple. Jesus didn't say, go and make people believe in me, or go and, go and make people go to church. Uh-huh. He said, go and make disciples. And to be a disciple, the word disciple, uh, come in, in the original language, comes from a word which means to, to learn, to learn. And I often, when I speak to other priests, I'll say, you know, the, the parishioners that you have in your parish, the ones who actually have a hunger and a desire to learn, what percentage of your congregation does that describe? And people will be very honest about that. And I know that, uh, for instance, some studies in the States, some people said as, as little as 6% of our parishioners does that, does that actually describe, maybe 6 to 12%. Yes. Uh, so one of the tasks that we have before us as pastors is, <laughs> if the people in our church are called to go out and make disciples, our problem is, that we haven't made disciples of the majority of the people in the church to begin with. Okay, so, so that's really where we need to begin. Yeah. Okay. That's you know what I'm glad that you said that. So so that's not a little a little less daunting. We're not talking about making everybody into little missionaries right off the bat, but can we at least ensure that the people who are in the pews have a thirst, a hunger, they want to learn. And, 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 and like w- with programs like Alpha, which I know you, you've used many times in your parishes, um, uh, so, so, so that's a good place to start. Absolutely. Uh, and when we do Alpha, usually our, our courses are about two-thirds church people and one-third unchurched. Yeah. So when we bring them together, we, we break them out into different small groups because there's nothing worse than an unchurched or a person who doesn't know anything about faith or being in with a bunch of churchy people. Right. Uh, so we try to break them out. But oftentimes in an Alpha experience, people will have a profound experience of, of Christian community for the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they will often have an encounter with Jesus, 
and an experience of the Holy Spirit. And and those these three essential things, sadly to say, can often be missing from the life of many church-going Catholics. They, they come to Mass, they have faith, they believe in God, they believe in Jesus, but it's not an inter- in, intensely personal faith that hasn't had uh, that personal encounter. And, and the Holy Spirit tends to be more of a concept than, than a person of the Godhead whom they have an experience and a relationship with, so that often uh, Christians were often uh, almost functionally binatarian, uh, if in theory we're, we're, we are trinitarian. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, good. Thank you, Father James. We're going to leave it there. Thank you for not staying in the sacristy and for going out and risking getting hit by a car. <laughs> hey, Pedro, thanks so much for t- taking the time and the interest to, to have, have this discussion. Absolutely. Very important topic. Father James Mallon is the pastor of St. Benedict Parish in Halifax, and he's the author of Divine Renovation from a Maintenance to a Missional Parish, a book published by Novalis. Here now is our featured artist of the week, Mags, with Lead Me to the River from her album Mismatched.
was Mags with Lead Me to the River from her album Mismatched. Four years ago, I said that it is so refreshing to hear a new voice and find new talent. And that was when Mags was just 15 years old and had just put out her Christmas jazz album. Now she's 19 and has just put out this gem of an album titled Mismatched. Mags is also working on a Kickstarter campaign for her next album, which will be the jazz album. So she's not sitting around being a teenager. So to tell us more, I'm now joined by Mags. Maggie, welcome to the program. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You know what? I I was thinking, oh yeah, she's been on the show, but that was four years ago. A lot has happened. Yes, definitely. Um, What has happened? Yes. What has happened in the last four years since we last spoke? In the last four years? Uh, well, for uh, after I released my album, Mismatched, actually. Uh, so it was nominated for the uh, Pop Contemporary Album of the Year yes. at the 2013 CGMA Awards. Yes. Um, and then my single, Knock, which your listeners probably just heard. It, We're going to play it after, top, yeah. Yeah, I made the top seven. Uh, on the Canadian Christian music charts, yes. um, and then yeah, I had a I had a, "Lead Me to the River" was another song, uh, and it was a finalist in the John Lennon songwriting contest. And so, uh, besides that, I've been pretty busy with school, um, <laughs> but you know, keep I'm trying to keep uh, music going on the side for sure. Yeah. So you're in, you're 19 years old. You're in school. Uh, what do you want to do with <laughs> What do you want to do when you grow up? What do I want to do when I grow up? Um, I I think I just have to keep things open for for God to you know be able to do whatever He wants. Um, I'm really not sure. I'm kind of in the stage where I'm sure a lot of other people are at, where it's just you you aren't quite sure where you're going, um, mm-hmm. but you know that you're going somewhere, right? So yeah, um, yeah. So you know, hopefully with my music, you know, God can do whatever He wants with it, and. Uh, you know, we'll see where where it goes from there. Yeah, most most nineteen year olds have no clue <laughs> what they want to do or what they're doing. Um, you're right; mm-hmm. you're going somewhere. Um, and most nineteen year olds aren't open to doing God's will. I, I know you come from a, a Catholic family. I know you've kind of sort of haven't been able to escape that. But how has that been for you growing up? Um, you never had moments of doubt or or rebellion. Oh no. <laughs> 
I, I think I think that's probably one of my strong traits as a singer is that I'm I'm like very much uh, someone who has struggled with doubt and uh, and frustration. Um, back in I think even before my my first uh, pop album, I was diagnosed with depression, uh, mm. depression disorder, and anxiety. And, uh, and all of high school, and even now, I mean, I'm, I'm tested in my faith, as, as I'm sure everyone is mm-hmm. in some shape or form. And so it's, it's like, music has, has been a, a way for me to, uh, to try to express my frustration, not just, you know, talking about the good times. And uh, I personally believe that, that music is a good, a good platform for venting, you know, the frustrations that I'm sure every Christian goes through yeah uh yeah so so i've definitely been struggling you know in my faith and and it's always a challenge every single day uh right. to just keep you know keep the faith you know it's mm-hmm. such a such a task <laughs> yeah is that is that what lead me to the river is about i've been listening to it and trying to figure out what it's about mm-hmm. yeah lead me to the river it was actually one of the last uh songs i had to make one more song for my album to be completed, and so usually when I songwrite, I, it just kind of comes to me, and mm-hmm. then you know I, I I complete the song. But this was the first one where I had to sit down and really just think about what I was going to write, and um, I guess in that way it it was a, a different take in songwriting for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really about it's about um, when you're struggling and and you know just the weight of you wake up and you feel the weight of the world in your shoulders and and you just you just feel like you're that blind man you know in the in the bible stories who who just is always you know can't see Christ until Christ is right in front of him mm-hmm. and you know you just you feel so lost sometimes and basically the song is about the chorus is about uh you know even though i can't see you lord even though i'm so frustrated and you know, yada yada yada. Um, yeah, lead me to the river. You know, like it's really God's God's duty to help you go where you need to go. You know, and it's just our obligation to say yes. So that's kind of what the song was. That's the direction the song was going in. Yeah, is uh, you you said that song songwriting and singing is definitely a way to to get it all out, um, but so is prayer. Yeah, absolutely. How much is prayer yeah. a part of your songwriting? Um, I think just like while I'm I'm songwriting, like it's more so God just allows me to, you know, translate those feelings into into you know a song. But for me as an artist, you know, I'm not very. I think it's actually very specific. Uh, talent to be able to write songs about God, mm-hmm. and so I, I, I kind of, you know, more so I'm able to talk about everyday struggles yes. more so than than you know praise and worship songs. Absolutely. But I, I find for myself, um, you know, I just sit there some days and I just turn on Audrey Assad or you know Matt Marr and I just sit there and yeah. I just let the music yes. help me pray, you know. So yeah, yeah music is just so amazing in that way no it's true yeah. and and i don't think anybody would would listen to this album or any of your other stuff but certainly these mm-hmm. songs and think oh she's a christian artist do you do you see yourself as a christian artist um yeah i i i definitely do i mean i i 
I don't think that having to be a Christian artist means that you have to have every single song, you know, about Christ. It's yeah. kind of like in your in your daily life when you interact with people. I mean, Christ usually is in every single conversation and every sentence, although I'm I'm sure that's probably the way it's supposed to be, but yeah. but you know, it, it's it's just kind of a a balance, right? Like trying to strike a balance between you know, your struggles, and then hope. Like, that's what I think I, I was able to capture in, in Leading Me to the River. I mean, mm-hmm. the verses are pretty are pretty depressed and despairing, right? And then the chorus is just like, oh, God, even though I'm despairing, like, I'm still holding on to you. Like, don't yes. worry. <laughs> so, yeah, it's all, I think it's just about balance. I, I, I do consider myself a Christian. Artist. Yeah. Okay, so we're going to leave it there, but uh, that's lots of information. Um uh, good luck in what you're doing. Thank okay. you so much. You're very welcome. You can learn more about Mags, the singer. You can purchase her music or you can find out how to support the Kickstarter campaign either at her Facebook page, Mags the Singer, but she also has a website, magsthesinger.com. And here now is Mags with that song that she mentioned, Knock, from her album, Mismatched. listening to Mags with Knock from her album Mismatched. That concludes this special edition of the Salt and Light Hour. Remember to visit our website saltandlighttv.org slash radio and also look for me on Facebook and Twitter. Thank you for listening. I'm Deacon Pedro.